the the stage is yours to begin. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Welcome everybody this evening. Um, one of my favorite topics, uh, by Samson Rafael Hirsch, and I certainly have a, a personal a personal connection and a personal uh, uh, love for what he represents. Um, we looked at last week um, as one of the really one of the Gedolei Yisrael, one of the leading uh, Orthodox uh, rabbinical figures in 19th century Ashkenaz uh, Europe. Um, and uh, primarily he was working in Germany and in Western Europe. Western Europe were dealing with different types of problems than they had in Eastern Europe. In Eastern Europe, they were still fighting uh, poverty and famine and persecution and, uh, and, and hardships. In, in Western Europe in the 19th century, they were fighting a different battle. It was a spiritual battle, uh, which was caused by the Enlightenment and the Emancipation, which gave them civil rights, gave the Jewish community civil rights, and allowed them access to the universities and the, uh, and the concert halls and the non-Jewish society, welcomed them with open arms, and they were able to pursue professions and buy properties and gain wealth, all the things that they've never ever been able to do in Europe because of the persecution of the governments. And suddenly they were free. Suddenly they were free. And sadly, 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 the result of this freedom was that a very, very high percentage, difficult to know exactly percentages, but certainly more than 50% um, of the German Jewish community made a mad dash for assimilation and not just assimilation, but actually uh, converting to Christianity. Hundreds of thousands of people are reported to have converted to Christianity in the 19th century, um, not because they suddenly started believing in Christianity, but because Christ the, the conversion, the baptism, was an entry visa into uh, non-Jewish society. You could get a job as a civil servant, you could get a job as a lawyer or as a professor at a university, all the things you couldn't get uh, if you were Jewish. We touched on all that last week. I ended up last week by speaking a little bit about the new uh, community that uh, Samson Rafael Hirsch created in 1851 in Frankfurt. And this was uh, considered to be a completely uh, a new departure from the way in which um, Jews were davening in, in, in Eastern Europe and in Europe previously, where really uh, Beisak Knesses was a little bit haphazard and disorganized, and people walked in whenever they wanted to. They didn't pay membership. They sat wherever they wanted to. Uh, they came in and came out, and they joined in with the chazan, and the chazan was anybody who wanted to be a chazan. Generally speaking, most of the davening areas were uh, shuls, which were somewhat um, uh, haphazard, I would say. Um, but Tzemshara Fawla Hirsch instituted a completely new type of shul, which became a sort of a gold standard for uh, shuls in Western Europe of a certain type, where people paid membership, where there were rules, where there was a dress code, where there was a decorum and civility, and where, I mean, for example, the rabbi and the chazan were professionals. And as professionals, they wore certain robes, the robes of the rabbi and the robes of the chazan. And, and they looked the part, and they had to they had to train, and they had to practice, and it was and nobody could be a chazan except for the chazan. Right? It didn't matter if you had yard sight or not. 
if you're on the outside, you said Kaddish, but having yard site or having having a chiyuv did not allow you access to being a shliach tzibur because the chazan, everything had to be done professionally. And the rabbi, when he spoke, it was a professional lecture given in Hochdeutsch. Hochdeutsch is the German equivalent of Oxford, Oxford English, right? It was, uh, it was given in the highest uh, uh, type of German, not conversational, colloquial German, but high German. And uh, it lasted for a long time. The Josh said, everybody had to sit still in their seats. You couldn't sit anywhere other than your seat. And uh, I don't think I mentioned last week, but for example, children were not welcome in the shul. This was not a children-friendly shul. Uh, under six years old, I think they weren't allowed into the shul. Uh, there was certainly not, not, nothing of the sort of uh, the, the terrible uh, customs of uh, throwing sweets or anything uh, like that. That was really considered to be uh, horrendous. Uh, activity, horrendous, wild and haphazard activity. Everything was done absolutely formal, uh, civilized and dignified. And this was in order to address uh, the, the German, the sort of the culture of the middle classes in Germany at the time, who lived that sort of life. And if shul was in any way haphazard or undignified, they didn't respect it. Um, later on, I think some of these rules were relaxed a little bit and people were allowed to bring some children and they were allowed to sing along with a cousin. Um, but what was interesting was that this shul uh, became really a, um, a centerpiece of Western Europe, uh, copied later on by major shuls in France and the United Synagogue in England and even Young Israel. And it was shuls of what was maybe the forerunner of what later on was to become modern Orthodox shuls that people paid membership. The whole idea of paying membership to a shul uh, hardly existed beforehand. In Eastern Europe, nobody paid membership to a shul. Uh, they davened in a shul where, which was funded by people giving the dollars. If you had an aliyah, uh, you, you gave a contribution. Uh, some, of, some of them even auctioned off the mitzvahs um, in shul. And that was the income of the shul. Nobody paid membership. So it was really a different culture. Western Europe uh, was in a different cultural planet uh, to Eastern Europe and they were fighting uh, different battles. I'd just like to uh, maybe uh, illustrate this, interestingly, with a, a Dvatera from the Malbim. The Malbim was alive at this time, and um, the, uh, uh, there's a posuk that uh, the Ashkenazim read in the Haftarah um, of uh, this past Shabbos uh, from uh, Yeshaya chapter 27, a famous posuk in Yeshaya, when I say a famous posse in Yeshaya, exactly what I mean is it's a posse in Yeshaya, which is a song. Uh, only the psuki, which are songs, um, are famous in Yeshaya. And this posse is a song. Uh, okay, I'm not going to sing it for you, but that's the posse in, in Yeshaya 27. That, that there will come a day, the great day of the messianic era, and there will be the shofar gadol, the great shofar, which we mention every weekday in Ashmona Esra, to carve a shofar gadol, l'chei rosenu, is from that posseg in Yeshaya. And uh, what will happen? And what, who will come and, and, and rejoin Klal Yisrael? The people who were lost over the ages. This is very interesting. Ashur. Ovdin with an aleph, not with an ayin, means people who were lost in Assyria, 
who was lost in Assyria? The 10 lost tribes were lost in Assyria. Uh, so it seems to be that Yeshaya say that they will rejoin the Jewish people in Messianic times. And those people who's, who were pushed aside from Judaism in Eretz Mitzrayim, in Egypt. Okay, but the Malbim says something very interesting, a beautiful drush, which captures Europe in the 19th century. He says, what does it mean, Ovdim Be'eretz Ashur? So this is a beautiful, part, a beautiful bit of, of, of Midrashic interpretation of the Malbim. The word Ashur, of course, means Assyria, uh, but it's spelled Aleph Shin Vov Reish. And Aleph Shin Vov Reish in, in Lashon HaKodesh means Osher, means happiness, freedom, affluence. Right? If you wish somebody Osher with an Aleph, that's what you're wishing them, happiness and freedom and affluence. So he says, some of the Jewish people over the centuries are lost. They, they are lost by Eretz Ashur. They get lost in the land of affluence and freedom. In other words, large sections of the Jewish people are lost through assimilation in a context of freedom. And that's what he's referring to. He's referring to the 19th century Western Europe communities of Germany and France and England and Holland, who were really completely uh, assimilated because of uh, the opportunities of freedom and commercial opportunities. For Hamidachim, Be'eretz Mitzrayim means Mitzrayim comes from the word Tsar and Tsaros, he says. There are also lots of people who are lost to Klal Yisrael through persecution and through hardship and through crusades and pogroms and inquisitions and holocausts. And lots of people were lost through, through the uh, uh, difficult times. So he says, these are the two types of uh, losses that Klalishana had over the years. And Yeshaya is telling us that something will happen, which the Novi describes as the Shofar Godol. In some sense, there will be a clarion call um, of, of the Mashiach, and he will bring back those people who were lost. Anyway, I just thought there was a beautiful, there's something beautiful about that parish because it captures exactly the situation in Europe when the Mulberry was writing this in the mid-19th century. And in a sense, it captures the difference between Western Europe and Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe were Nidochim Be'eretz Mitzrayim, and Western Europe were Ovdim Be'eretz Asher. And, and, and Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch was the fighter to fight against assimilation and fight against the reform and fight against people converting out of Judaism. And he did this in many ways. The first way was that he was a prolific author. He wrote several uh, landmark books, which were extremely uh, influential. And he also wrote hundreds of articles in the press and in magazines of various sorts, where he really fought against, he went head to head against the reform and tried to expose the reform movement that they were not authentic Jews, they were not, they, they, they were mis, misreading and misinterpreting uh, Judaism, the Torah and the Talmud, and that their, their brand of Judaism was a fake. And he was a gladiator in, the, in this battle, fighting against them. Uh, he even published a book called Naftule Naftali. I'm not sure why he called it that, but a book simply dedicated to, to uh, exposing the reform movement as non-authentic. Um, he also wrote a book, Chorev, which I think I mentioned last week as well. He had also, and also one of the, his greatest work was his commentary on the Chumash. 
And one of the interesting things about his commentary on the Chumash, incidentally, is that there were several great commentaries written in the 19th century on the Chumash, like, for example, the Malbim and Haksava Kabbalah, and, for example, the Hanagdava of the Nativ. There were several uh, commentaries written, but they were all written in Hebrew. His was the only one written in the vernacular. He wrote in German because he, was, he knew who his target audience was. He wanted to reach as wide a public as possible. And indeed, his commentary on the Chumash is still uh, very relevant and readable um, uh, um, to this day. Um, there were many, uh, many interesting innovations uh, that he brought out in his Chumash. And I'd like to try and give you um, a bit of a taste of some of the key ideas uh, that Hirsch uh, taught and, and uh, brought in his Chumash and also in his collected writings. Uh, there are several books of Gesammelte Geschriften, collected writings of Hirsch, which are also fascinating essays on large subjects. One of the things that he discusses um, is uh, Tfilah, the activity of, of Davin. Um, so I mentioned to you the, the shul, um, that became a big issue for him. But maybe before I look at the Davni, I just want to mention to you, because it's really Parsha Shavua, last week's Parsha and this week's Parsha, Shemos, Vaira and Boi, where we find, uh, according to Assumption of Rafael Hirsch, that it's a mistake to think that Shul is, a, is the center of Jewish life. He says, this is not a Jewish idea. Uh, shul is an important place to get together, and it's important for all sorts of reasons gives a person identity, uh, enables them to get together to, to, to uh, hear Dvarim Shepi Kedusha, Kaddish Kedusha and Baruch Hu. But re- the real sanctity of Klal Yisrael is in the home, right? And uh, he, men- he mentions this particularly in this part of the Chumash, right? The very first posuk of Shemos tells us that Klal Yisrael came down to Mitzrayim not as individuals, but as family units. He says the family unit is the fundamental, fundamental building block of Klal Yisrael, and that's where really the main spiritual life of every Jewish man, woman, and child has to be nurtured. Coming to Shul is nice. It's a public event, uh, but actually in one place, he says, it was up to me. I'd closed down all Shuls for a while, and, and refocus Jewish life in Jewish homes. Now, the Jewish homes should be the, the place where learning takes place, where davening takes place, where children are, are, are given the Masera and the parents hand over the value system of the Torah and the beliefs of the Torah. This should all happen in the home. In particular, uh, this is noticeable in, in the halachas of uh, Korm Pesach uh, that we get in Shemos chapter 12. Um, uh, the common Pesach being, of course, the moment when Klal Yisrael were, were created, where the Jewish people were created on Pesach. And there, there are several psukim there which speak about um, that the common Pesach has to be eaten in the bias, the bias echon yeocha, right? That it has to be that each, uh, there are several psukim here. Babayis Echad Yochel speaks about Ser Lebeis Ovois in Yimat Habayit Amias Miser, and when it comes to putting the blood on the doorpost, says Velokhum in Adam Venoskov Ashtei Hamuzuzos 
para mashkem al habotim for hoylocha hadam laois al habotim. The tremendous emphasis again and again on the bias that the bias, the home, the Jewish home, is the focal point um, of of Jewish life and not uh, the synagogue. Of course, having said that, he did put a lot of effort into building a synagogue uh, to his to his exact specifications and running it in a very particular way. Uh, because in reality, people did consider Shul uh, to be uh, the center of their Jewish life, but he considered this uh, uh, to be a mistake. And that's a very interesting um, uh, um, aspect of his thought in general, uh, that we find that uh, also with regards to the role of women, uh, that he felt that, that whereas in Shul, really, uh, the men are more prominent than the women, but uh, that, that, he said, is not really the main point. Really, the main Jewish life is in the home, and in the home, the woman is much more uh, effective and prominent uh, than the man is. And the difference between the roles of the men and the women are really divided up between the shul and the home. And, and, and really, the home is the ikka. The home is of the essence in terms of the Jewish continuity and teaching Torah and practicing Torah, and that is really... Um, one it was one of his one of his um, major uh, major themes. Um, it's interesting to note also that he was fighting a battle both on the left and on the right. Uh, I just want to sharpen this idea for you a little bit that in a sense uh, Hirsch was offering a third option, an option which had never been on the table before. Uh, side of the teachings of Simpson Rafael Hirsch in Western Europe, there were really only two movements. There was the movement towards assimilation and conversion, the movement out of Judaism, and then there was the model, which was the preferred model in Eastern Europe, both of the Hasidim and of the Lithuanian yeshivas, which was the isolationist model. The isolationist model worked something like this, that we also realize that modernity is a big, a big problem, and that it, it could lead to assimilation. And therefore, our response to it is, we're going to shut down completely. For everybody, anybody who's ever wondered why Hasidim wear strange clothes, the answer is, this is a very well thought through policy of the uh, leaders of the Hasidic movement in the 19th century, who said, the only way to protect ourselves against the dangers of modernity, which lead directly to assimilation, is that we, we want no part of modernity at all. We, we shouldn't dress like them. We shouldn't talk like them. We shouldn't read their books. We shouldn't go to their colleges. We don't want to mix at all with the modern world, with the non-Jewish world. As far as we're concerned, all mixing with the non-Jewish world is possible. And it's a slippery slope. If, if, if we start wearing their clothes, we'll end up sitting in their coffee shops. And if we sit in their coffee shops, we'll start... Uh, getting to know uh, non-Jewish uh, marriage partners. And before you know it, you, you're lost to Yiddishkeit. And this, this slippery slope had proven itself so often. The numbers were so enormous that in the, one could forgive the Eastern world, the, the Eastern Europe, uh, for taking the view of isolationism and saying, yeah, maybe modernity in an ideal world might have something interesting to offer us, but the price is too high. The price is that Torah, and I tell you something, a paradox is that, in a sense, the assimilationists on one side and 
the Haredim uh, and the Hasidim on the other side had one thing in common. They both believed that Torah and modernity were simply incompatible with each other. You could not mix them. Mixing them was simply an illusion. And therefore, in the Hasidic and Haredi world, they decided we're going to completely uh, cut ourselves off from the modern world and live in a hermetically sealed Torah world. And in the, uh, uh, the, uh, the assimilationist world, they said, look, we can't, we can't deal with keeping mitzvahs and keeping Shabbos and keeping kosher. We're going to dive straight into the non-Jewish world and benefit from all its uh, uh, opportunities, commercial, social, uh, academic opportunities, and we're going to forget about Torah. Shimshon Rafael Hirsch uh, took the view that they were both wrong. They were both wrong because Torah is compatible with uh, a, a modern secular world. You just have to know how to select from the modern world and you have to know how to practice uh, Torah life within, um, within the context uh, of the modern world and you have to be strong. In, in the Hasidic, don't forget this is a few of the contemporaries um, of, uh, of, of Shamshin Rufal Hirsch in the more Haredi Eastern European world were people like um, uh, Rukhaim Volozhin, who was building and running the Volozhin Yeshiva, Rabbi Shal Salanta, who was building the uh, Musa movement, um, the Natsiv, who later on was in the Volozhin Yeshiva, the Hasim Sofa in Presburg. All these people were building massive. Haredi-style uh, communities. And in the Hasidic world, there were, of course, the Gera Rebbers and, the, and, and, the, and all the other uh, major Rebbers of the Hasidic world. They all thought that Shimshon Rafael Hirsch was a fantasist, that it was a, it was a fantasy of his that modernity and Torah were compatible. That's what, that, that was the view that they took. But Hirsch stood firm and, and taught Torah in Derech Eretz. So that was really his massive chiddush, which paved the way for the sort of Jewish life, my guess is, uh, that most of the people who are watching this year, including myself, uh, that we live. Anybody who's ever gone to university and is still keeping Shabbos is actually a Hirschian, uh, is following uh, the path of Samson Raphael Hirsch and uh, unknowingly um, is actually has taken that uh, um, that, that particular option. There is one point I touched on in the last week's Shia, which was that Hirsch uh, took a critical attitude towards the Ramba. Now, this might be of interest, especially as in this Shia, there are quite a few uh, uh, listeners from more Sephardi background for whom uh, the dramas taking place in Ashkenaz Europe might not be so interesting. But the truth is, we are all living by and large in an Ashkenazified world. And therefore, believe me, the Hirschian revolution is very relevant to everybody, even if genetically, and your, your family has a has Sephardi roots, uh, the ideas of Hirsch have permeated uh, through all our educational systems and are extremely valuable for us all. But he was concerned in a few places, Hirsch writes about the fact that in his opinion, so on the one hand, the Rambam was of course, the greatest halachic authority uh, in Jewish history, and, and it ha- had laid down the foundations of halacha for all future generations in his 14-volume uh, masterpiece of the Yad HaZakah, and the, the, on, of that there is no doubt. But 
Hirsch questioned not his halachic uh, works, but his philosophical works. That in his philosophical works, Hirsch took the view that uh, the Rambam had accepted a non-Jewish philosophical, in, that, in his case, Aristotelian uh, uh, categories, philosophical categories, and he'd accepted them uncritically. And he, try, he was trying to fit a square uh, into a circle. He was trying to fit Torah into uh, philosophical categories from the non-Jewish world, which did not fit. That was Hirsch's, in a nutshell, Hirsch's view of the Rambam's philosophy. He felt that the Rambam, in his eagerness to try and combine Torah with general philosophy, he had accepted too much Aristotelian material into his philosophy, and that this was and, and, and the hybrid philosophy of the Rambam, he felt, had been too heavily influenced by non-Jewish sources, that it wasn't uh, uh, based on Jewish thought uh, um, in, in, the, in its pure sense. In contrast, for example, uh, to the Kuzari of Yehuda Alevi, who, who Shem Shreppal Hirsch thought was authentically Jewish and based on pure uh, Jewish thought, and rejected uh, the categories of Aristotelian philosophy. This is really uh, Hirschian's, uh, Hirsch's criticism of the Rambam. I must tell you, just as a footnote, uh, that I don't agree with Hirsch, and I've studied uh, the Rambam and Aristotle, Aristotle quite extensively, and the Rambam did borrow from Aristotle, but he did so selectively and critically. And it's not true uh, that he was influenced uh, by Ar Aristotle in a sense that he, in some way, modified his Torah Shkofer uh, accordingly. Uh, that's not the case. I think that he was uh, very, very careful not to accept from the non-Jewish world any, uh, any elements of their philosophy which were incompatible with Torah thought. But there it is. That's an interesting debate uh, regarding uh, Hirsch's uh, criticism of, of the Rambam. There's an interesting line attributed to Hirsch, uh, which is stuck in my head, um, uh, which uh, w goes something like this. Um, in the generation before Simpson Rafal Hirsch, there was someone called Moses Mendelssohn. He was writing in the 1700s. He was a generation before Hirsch, but he had already left. Uh, by the time Hirsch came on the scene, there was the translation, the Biur, the translation of Moses Mendelssohn of the Chumash, and quite a few of the, of the disciples of Moses Mendelssohn were in Germany. And Moses Mendelssohn had watered down his Judaism uh, considerably in order to make it compatible with the world of the Haskalah, the world of the Enlightenment, and had, had in fact, even though he himself, it seems, was an observant Jew, but none of his children were, and most of them married out. So he was actually uh, somebody who Hirsch was critical of. And the following line remains in my head, although I looked for it just before, I don't quite know where he wrote it, but he, he, he was reputed to have said, neither Moses, the son of Mendel, nor Moses, the son of Maimon, are the true heirs of Moses, the son of Amram. That was a line that was attributed to Hirsch. In other words, neither the Rambam, right? The Rambam is Moses, the son of Maimon, and Moses Mendelssohn is Moses, the son of Mendel. Neither of them are true heirs of the original uh, Moshe Rabbeinu. That was, that's what he wanted. To, that's what he wanted to say. 
I, I think that's a little bit strange to put Moses Mendelssohn and the Rambam in the same sentence. I think that's a rather a, a misconstruing the whole situation. But one does that when one, when one wants to make a point. I don't think he was comparing them in the slightest because, the, the, because Hirsch accepted unquestionably uh, the Rambam's halachic works, right? He was only questioning the uh, philosophical works. Um, for example, uh, the Rambam was very emphatic, both in the Yara Hazaka and in the Merida Vuchim, that any, any attempts to describe God using human language was all, anthrop- what he calls anthropomorphism, was all just metaphor, and one should uh, try, one has to preserve, one has to preserve a totally abstract uh, uh, concept of God who, who is infinite, and there are no qualities, uh, human qualities, which are relevant when we're talking about God. And God, even though the Posuk often speak, uses human virtues, Rachel v'chanun, Erech ha'payim, Rav chesed v'emes, right? The Rakhadosh Baruch Hu went down, he went up, he got angry. All sorts of verbs we use to describe God. All that is metaphor, and really Rakhadosh Baruch Hu is completely living in the world of the infinite, and all that language is not relevant uh, to God at all. Now that is pure, if you like, Aristotelian philosophy, uh, which the Rambam does use, and the Rambam and, and Hirsch takes the view that no, that's not the way we should think about God. We should think about God having all these qualities in the in a real sense. I'm not going to go into this now in great detail, but there is a very interesting uh, uh, Jewish philosophy philosophical debate um, on this subject of. Um, of uh, attributes, the attributes of God and, and what and what they mean. Um, for the Rambam, the attributes of God actually were extremely important because the Rambam writes in Hilchot Deyot, chapter one, that all the attributes of God are mentioned in the Torah because we should aspire towards those attributes. They're not meant to describe God at all. They're meant to describe us. And, and we have a mitzvah of a holachta bedrochov, one of the uh, 630 mitzvahs of imitating God, and therefore these descriptions are very important, says the Rambam. But don't for a minute think that they actually describe God, because God is la'ela, la'ela, min kobrichosa, He's beyond human language, and therefore uh, this is uh, not relevant. Okay, I've gone a bit astray from the topic of this shia, but it's interesting to see that Hirsch got stuck into this uh, particular problem, and um, uh, that was a, a comment that he made repeatedly, uh, a critical comment uh, about the Rambam. I personally don't think he was correct in that, but that is part of his part of his teachings. I'd like to I'd like to introduce you to one or two other key ideas that crop up regularly in the writings of Samson Raphael Hirsch. One of them is uh, that he feels that the great heroes of the Tanakh, uh, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, David. Uh, etc., um, are not to be idealized and that, they, and that we should learn about them with their faults and with their flaws. And I can read you a line which he writes in Boratius chapter uh, uh, 12 about Avram Avinu. He writes, the Torah does not hide from us the faults, the errors, and the weaknesses of our great men. And this is precisely what gives these stories credibility. He had a very interesting thesis about the Torah emphasizing the fallibility that Avram did certain things wrong 
and the Dovid Amalek did certain things wrong, and we shouldn't be shocked by that, because they were human beings. And the Torah wants to emphasize the fact that they were human. And he says, Dafka, because they were human, we can learn from them. If they were deified, if, if they were made into some absolute uh, um, uh, paragons of perfection, we would not be able to learn from them at all. And this is a very this is a theme throughout his Perish Anatera. He doesn't hesitate to point out uh, mistakes made by the others, and he doesn't feel that that is a problem um, in terms of learning Torah. Other Mephorshim uh, do not, this actually is a debate in Chazal itself. There are many Mamori Chazal who take the view, anybody who thinks that David HaMelech did a chait is wrong, anybody who thinks that, that Moshe Rabbeinu did a chait is wrong. Uh, do we really, can we understand the misdeeds of great men? This is a very interesting question, which is a subject for a whole Shia. But I'm just talking to you about Samson Raphael Hirsch, and in his writings, he, on the contrary, he, in a sense, celebrated the fact that the Torah gave us uh, the Ovus and Gedoli Yisrael, and that the Torah gives them to us, warts and all, right, with, with, with their flaws and with their fallibilities, and that that's a good thing. And this is a very interesting recurring theme, which, which needs a little bit of thought, and again, it's not necessarily correct. One of the upshots of this thesis of his was, one of the criticisms leveled of Hirsch was, that his way of teaching Torah lacked a certain amount of spirituality and transcendence. It was all very focused and practical and, and re realistic. He was into realism and not into Ruchnius so much, right? People who wanted Ruchnius went to the world of the Hasidim or went to the yeshivas. Uh, from Shem Shemrafal Hersh's school, they got uh, an un unwavering and uncompromised connection to halacha and an understanding of, of Jewish philosophy. But it was all very, if you like, a practical and, and um, um, un a little, he, he's, he's accused a little bit of being possibly uh, uninspiring in a certain sense. Uh, and that is uh, uh, one of the interesting aspects of his writings. I personally do find it very, very inspiring, but that's something which is uh, part of the uh, study of the life of, of Samson Raphael Hirsch. One of the interesting questions, I mentioned to you, I think, in last week's year, there was a book by Norman Lamb called Torah Umada, which is definitely worth reading, uh, where he speaks about various different models of combining Torah with secular knowledge. And he speaks about a chapter there about Samson Raphael Hirsch. And one of the interesting uh, question marks when you read Hirsch is, is as follows. How exactly did he understand the relationship between the wisdom of the Torah and the wisdom of, uh, say, science and humanities and, uh, and psychology, the, the, the secular, the secular chachmas? What is the relationship between them? He certainly felt they were compatible. He certainly felt they could coexist with each other. But the question is, did he take the view more than that? This is what Norman Lamb looks at. Did he believe that these two areas of learning, that actually the, the study of science and humanities enhanced Jewish life? Or did he just feel that they, were, they could coexist with Jewish life? There is a very big difference between the two. And there's a big difference in the way we understand the principle of Torah Derech Eretz. 
Was it coexistence or was it much more than that? Was it enhancement? Now, there is one area particularly where it seems from the Ramba, it seems from the Hirsch, that he is speaking about uh, the other wisdoms uh, of the, in the world enhancing Judaism, and that's in his symbolism in Parshish Truma, understanding the menorah, the menorah and the base of Mikdash. So he goes through, he's very big on symbolism in general. He takes uh, symbolic understandings of, the, of, of all the mitzvahs, and particularly in the Mishkan, everything has a symbolic meaning. North, South, East, and West all have very important symbolic meanings for him, which I won't go into for the moment. But in the menorah itself, the shape of the menorah, which is without question the most uh, recognizable Jewish symbol ever to, to this day, there is no more recognizable Jewish symbol uh, than, than the menorah. The Mogandavid, the origins of the Mogandavid are very dubious whether they are of Jewish origin at all. They came to be associated with Judaism, but it's not clear at all where it comes from, the Mogandavid. But the menorah is definitely a Jewish, uh, the, the classic Jewish symbol. So he says the menorah is described in the Torah as having a, a base, a single shaft, and six branches coming out of it. And without going into details, because it's all the details there are enormous, kaftareha, all the buds and the flowers which were all in it but the Pasuk says it's miksha achas it has to be made all of one piece of gold and he says that the middle stem represents the central pillar of Torah but the six branches represent different areas of wisdom different areas of knowledge different types of general knowledge and general wisdom all of which in some way grow out of the central stem and they converge at the top. The flames converge at the top. And from that model, it seems clearly that he understood that the study of other, of other types of wisdom and knowledge actually enhances one, one's understanding of terror. It's not just uh, that, it, that it can coexist. And that is also a very interesting aspect of Hirsch's um, Hirsch's writings. Another point I thought I have time to mention um, is, is the, I mentioned it just before, but I didn't develop it, where he speaks about davening. What are we doing when we're davening? And he's very interested in the Hebrew word that Chazal use, lehit palel. What does it mean, lehit palel? What does that mean? Right? So the, the, uh, um, very briefly, he takes the view, hitpalel is, of course, uh, the, the Hebrew grammatical format of it is the hitpalel, which means it's something you're doing to yourself. Right? Lehitlabesh means to dress yourself, right? Uh, uh, and hitpalel means to do something to yourself. So peilamad lamad, he says, is to do with reflecting and judging and evaluating. So hit palel is an activity where you are judging yourself. That when you're davening, of course, you're also standing before God and praising God, all the things that we know that we're doing. But actually, tefillah should also be a process whereby we are self-reflective and self-evaluating. Right? This is the concept of tefillah, which is supposed to have an effect on us. So when we're davening to our Kodesh Baruch please help us. Uh, in one field or another, on one hand, we're 
we're, we're engaging in a bakasha. Uh, we're uh, begging from God to give us whatever it is we're asking for. But mitzad sheini, what we're really doing is we are working on ourselves. And really, tefillah is meant to be uh, an experience where you come out of it and you have developed and worked on your own spiritual thoughts and your spiritual level and your midot. All this is lehit palel, right? So in a sense, when we're asking HaKadosh Baruch to give us wisdom or paranasa or health, etc., we're not trying to convince God uh, to do something that maybe he hadn't originally intended to do. That is a, a simplistic a view of tefillah. What we're doing is we are making ourselves into more of a worthy recipient of the Chazdei Hashem. Now, the Kaddish Baruch who wants to give us Atachone in the Odom Das, and he wants to give us Rafua, and he wants to give us Pranasa, but we are not worthy recipients. But by engaging in Lehit Palel, we are engaging in an activity of spiritual growth and spiritual self-awareness and that is really the key to davening, that by making ourselves more a more worthy recipient, we can, uh, that gives a, a different meaning uh, to davening. And this is really a, a very beautiful theme that I found in several places in Hirsch, which I think are, are worth, worth thinking about. Um, one of the uh, general um, battles that Shimshon Rafael Hirsch was fighting, so so he was fighting the people who were simply just uh, assimilating and running out of Judaism. And for them, he wrote this book, The 19 Letters, which, which was meant to, 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 to uh, um, convince anybody thinking of abandoning Judaism uh, that it was a privilege to be part of Klal Yisrael and that he shouldn't do so. So he was fighting. There is a difference, uh, even today, there is a difference between what is, what is today called the reform movement and what is today called the conservative movement. I'm overgeneralizing a lot, and neither of them belong in the Orthodox world, but there is a difference, and at Hirsch's time as well, there was a difference between the real hardcore reform Judaism, who really denied Torah minah shamayim, they didn't accept the whole idea that the Torah itself came from God, they thought it was just, uh, the, as the Bible critics suggest it is, just written by several, several different authors over several centuries, they denied the principle of, of Terem and Hashemayim. But then there was another school of thought, which later on came to be called the uh, conservative movement, which at Hirsch's time was led by someone called Zachariah Frankel, which was at that time called historical Judaism. And historical Judaism basically accepted that the Chumash was given Min Hashemayim, but denied the fact that Torah Baalpeh came Min Hashemayim denied the validity of the Mishnah and the Gemara, of Teresh HaBalpeh. And this was, uh, so this is a debate that we had with the reform with, with the reform and the conservative movement, right? If you pick up a book in the bookshop called Rabbinic Judaism, the chances are it's written by a conservative rabbi, and the thesis is that the rabbis invented a whole new Judaism and wrote it down as the Mishnah and the Gemara, but they deny the idea that this is Torah min HaShamayim, that in some way they had a Masaira of, of Torah from Moshe Rabbeinu. What's interesting is that in Parshas Mishpatim, Hirsch dedicates himself uh, to the idea to try, try to, if you like, 
strengthen the bond between uh, the written Pasuk on the one hand and the Mishnah and the Gemara on the other. He wants to try and show that the, that the Torah Shebikhtav, the Torah Shebalpeh, the written and the oral traditions, they're really two sides of the same coin. And that and the one is unintelligible without the other. And in Parashat Mishpatim, he's got this very interesting essay where he says, where he compares it to um, lecture notes. I thought this was a very fascinating um, uh, uh, attempt to find a model in everyday life. He says, if you go to a lecture, right, the lecturer has got bullet points. He's not, he hasn't written out the whole lecture. He's written out just very briefly what are the points that he's going to say, right, like I have, right? I've got written down a dozen different points that I want to try and remember to give during the course of this uh, lecture. But I haven't written it down word for word, right? But if you just look at my bullet points, you won't know what the shear is about. You'll just get headlines, right? So he says, Moshe Rabbeinu wrote down the Chumash as lecture notes of what he wanted, what he was teaching to Klal Yisrael, but what he taught them, Torah Shabal Peh, that was the real lecture. So he gave them a lecture which lasted a whole day, and he wrote down in the Torah three words, right? And, and the Torah Shabal Peh is really the, the explanation of what the words in the Torah mean. And the words written in the Torah are unintelligible without, uh, without, the, Torah, without the Mishnah and the Gemara, without the uh, oral tradition of what the Torah means, right? When the Torah writes, Lo sabashel gedi bachaleiv ima, not to boil a kid in the, in the milk of its mother, right? So this is a code phrase, which by itself, we don't know what it means. We don't know what it means. But the Torah Shabbat teaches us that this is the principle of not mixing meat and milk. But you would never get it out of those four words. Without the Mishnah, right? And without the Gemara, you would have no idea uh, what those words mean. And Hirsch, one of his main goals in his commentary on the Torah is to show how the Torah Shabbat and Torah Shabbat are really uh, uh, part of the same integrated uh, system. The one without the other is completely useless. And that is one of his goals. But I just found very interesting this model of lecture notes, bullet points and lecture notes, something which everybody, uh, everybody can, uh, uh, can relate to. Also, it's interesting in his book, Chorev, he wrote a book called Chorev, which uh, I certainly advise everybody to uh, have a look at. At some point in your life, you should read a few chapters out of this book, Chorev. Because what Hirsch did was he, he took uh, the model of, of, of the Rishonim, the Sfaradi Rishonim, people like uh, the Rambam and, and the Sefer Achinuch, who, who wrote books uh, going through the whole Tariag mitzvahs and explained Ta'amei HaMitzvahs. What is the reason for the mitzvahs? Now, he emphasizes, as does the Sefer Achinuch, we don't do the mitzvahs because of the reasons, but nevertheless, part of Talmud Torah is to know the reasons for the mitzvahs that we are doing. And he goes through all the different types of mitzvahs that we have and what they are really designed to achieve. And that in, say, in, the, in the book, I've given, I've given a copy of Choreb. It's got a very good English translation. It's, a, it's, one, it's in one or two volumes, and it's a very, very interesting 
uh, book to give to somebody who wants to get deeper into Judaism and understand a bit better what the mitzvahs mean and why they were made the way they were made. The book of Horeb is, is a complete uh, a masterpiece. Incidentally, on the, on the mitzvah of not mixing meat and milk, he's got a very original theme there about, about life and death, funnily enough, right? That meat is, of course, from the dead animal, and milk is the, uh, the liquid which is meant to nurture new life. That new life and death are really symbolized in meat and milk. And the mixing of meat and milk in some way is inappropriate, right? Because they have, they, they represent two different ends of the spectrum within the animal kingdom. I've given you this really just in two or three sentences, but I think you get the general idea that he's trying to find rational uh, reasons for mitzvahs. Um, and the book Horeb is certainly a very, very well worth, very well worth um, uh, looking at. The word Torah itself, Hirsch gives an original insight into the word Torah, Tof, Vov, Resh, Hey, that Moshe Rabbeinu gave us the Torah. What does the word Torah mean? So generally, it's understood, it's assumed by all the Mephoshim, that Torah comes from the root of Hora'ah, which means to teach. A moret is a teacher. So therefore, Torah means teachings. Hish says that in fact, Torah comes from somewhere else completely. The word Torah comes from the word hey resh hey, which means like batahar vo'isha, batelet ben, right? Uh, when Yochevet gives birth to Moshe Rabbeinu in last week's parasha, it says batahar vo'isha, batelet ben, that she conceived and she gave birth. So batahar comes from the word herayon, which means pregnancy, which means to conceive a child, right? So here's right, the Torah is uh, the process whereby HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given us seeds into our person, into our neshama, into our mind and into our heart. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has planted seeds within us, like a woman who conceives a child, and they are seeds of truth and seeds of morality. And our job, like the pregnant woman, is to nurture those seeds and allow them to bloom and flourish into a full life of truth and morality. The Torah gives us seeds into us, and that is uh, the word Torah and the word Herayon, which for Hirsch is a key understanding of what the mitzvahs are there to do. And then he goes on in the Chorev to explain that there are lots of mitzvahs which are designed to plant in us certain seeds, right? And those seeds then blossom and bloom and grow and develop inside of us, and they are seeds of emunah, seeds of truth and seeds of morality. And that's what Torah is about, and nurturing, uh, nurturing the growth of these seeds. Incidentally, in the writings of the Maral Prague 500 years ago, you do already find that idea that Adam is called Adam because of Adama is related to the concept of earth. And it's, not, and it's, got, to, it's got to do with the, with the ability of earth uh, to bring seeds uh, to full growth. And that's the really the job of the mitzvahs is to give us those seeds and for us to nurture and to develop into a full Jewish life. I've got here a few uh, more uh, points that I wanted to make, but I think maybe I'll leave a few minutes for questions if people would like uh, to ask a few questions or make a few comments. Uh, we're, we're in the last five minutes of the Shia, 
So I'm going to give the give the um, microphone back to Ben. And uh, uh, if anyone has any comments or questions they'd like to raise, I'm pleased to take them. Thank you very much, Rebecca Mickey. That was um, absolutely amazing. Very insightful, really beautiful ideas we can take with us, and especially <laughs> recalling uh, Torah Amata by Rabbi Lam. I know that was personally speaking, that was a very important book that I read. Yes. Um, you know, uh, if I dare to second what the Rabbis said about uh, about reading Pleasure. that, it's uh, an excellent book. If anyone has any questions, please do um, please do raise your hand or type something in the chat. Just say there was a comment that was sent in the chat. Um, privately about how the S&P community did also used to pay um, a membership to be part of a synagogue. I think it was interesting that that's another connection between kind of classical Western Svarads and the Hershian ideas that he was, you know, creating, bringing a kind of decorum to the, to the synagogue experience. Um, so, uh, Margaret, do you want to unmute and ask a question? Thank you. Thank you very much, Rabbi Kimothy. That was wonderful. Did, in his Horev book, did um, Rabbi um, Shimshon Raphael Hirsch refer to how many hours to wait? This seems to be, in Western Europe, such a dichotomy. You know, my grandmother was stuck, so she waited one hour. Yekas waited right. three hours. I didn't wait six hours. So did you're, he talking write about, you're talking about waiting after eating meat, right? Yes. How long do you wait after eating meat? I'm, I'm not aware that Hirsch ever refers to that question, but it's well known that in his communities, the general, the default minhag was three hours. In Germany, in the Orthodox German world, people waited three hours after a meat meal before they were eating a milk. In the yeshiva world of Eastern Europe, the minhag was six hours. Um, in Holland, they had this wonderful minhag of one hour, which I know about, because my wife comes from Amsterdam. Yes, yes. So I know about that minag, but she had the bad luck of marrying somebody who grew up in the yeshiva world, so I'm afraid that minag went out of the window. Uh, but um, the, the default minag in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in, that, in his community was definitely three hours. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if I may ask a question uh, sure. and abuse my position as host. Um, I remember reading about the uh, split between Hirsch and Hildesheimer in terms of how exactly, how compatible is the Torah with science, with other um, other disciplines. And there's also a split as to how people think the split itself existed. So I would ask, what does the Rav <laughs> think about this? Okay, that is actually a, a bigger subject. That's definitely a, a wider, a wider subject. Um, it's certainly true. One of Shamsun Raphael's Hirsch's most important colleagues in the Torah of Derech Eretz world was Rabbi Azriel Hildesheim. So while whilst Hirsch was working in Frankfurt, uh, Azriel Hildesheimer was in Berlin, and Hildesheimer's main job was uh, to to run and build up a training seminary for a new generation of rabbis in the Rabina seminar of, of, of uh, Hildesheimer. Um, and it is true that he took a much more narrow view of general studies. He didn't want uh, his Talmudim to spend too much time uh, studying uh, Goethe and Schiller and Hegel and, uh, and, and these things. He didn't want them to do that. He, he felt that that was a waste. Um, they had to learn some they had to do some general studies. They had to learn 
some Greek and Latin and some of the classics, uh, but they were that he didn't recommend such a broad syllabus. But I think my reading of it is, and I must say I haven't really gone into it at such great depth, my reading of that split was that it was really, it was um, a difference in, in extent. It wasn't a difference in principle. They both agreed the principle of term derecherets. It was a difference in extent. To what extent should we really be spending a lot of time, which could be used for learning Torah, in studying general uh, humanities? I think that's the point. Thank you very much. We'll do one last question that Sina has asked in the chat, if that's all right. I'll read it out to everyone. It says, do we know who the Talmudim of Rav Hirsch were and who carried his torch after he passed? Okay. Um, uh, that's a good question. The, uh, he had some Talmudim who, who carried his torch um, into, into the next generation. Uh, he was somebody who really... Uh, wasn't a Rosh Yeshiva. So he didn't have Talmidim in the normal sense of the word. He had congregants in his kehillah, and he had uh, colleagues who worked with him. Uh, but some of his colleagues were Judea colleagues. Uh, two names come to mind of people who were colleagues of his junior colleagues who could be said to be his Talmidim. One of them was called Rabdovid Svi Hoffman, uh, who then also became one of the leaders of the Rabina Seminar Going into the 20th century, uh, Rudolf Hoffman took over the Rabina Seminar, and he was a Poisek. He wrote Chuvas Melamed Lahoyal, and he could certainly bought into the Torah Derech Eretz views of Hirsch and considered himself to be a Talmud. Um, the other one is uh, the Sridi Aish, Michiel Weinberg, um, who uh, also was connected to the uh, Rabina Seminar of Hildesheimer and was also a junior colleague. Um, so we're talking about Rabbonim who were part of that part of that uh, rabbinic training program. They were his Talmidim going forward. I think that's the best I can do for you in terms of his Talmidim going forward. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for the Shir, for answering the questions. We hope to have you back as well to do a future Shir. It's, it's a very, it's a wonderful program and it's a Kiddush Hashem and it's lovely to see you all here uh, on the screen. And uh, please God to be continued at some point in the near future. Thank you so much. Good night, everyone. Keep an eye out for all upcoming Chabura events and Chabura, you know, announcements on the WhatsApp group. And everyone should have a good night.